Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Steve Hill, and we're going to talk about some stuff today, namely translations of the Bible. And I was asked the other day, why are there so many translations and what's the difference? And I think we've talked about this briefly in other podcasts, but I thought we would talk a little bit more about this topic because I think people are interested. And I'm here with Taylor. And Taylor, you asked me that question, what, last time we did a podcast? I did. I was, so I was reading, uh, my boyfriend and I were reading through the Bible. I can't remember which passage it was, but we had two different Bibles. He has a translation called the Passion, and I had some sort of apologetic translation. And we were reading side by side, and it just it seemed like some of the wording just didn't match up. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those things today. And I want to. I'll try not to be everywhere around in in uh, talking about this, but I want to give an example today because I was reading the Book of Hosea today. This early this morning, and here's what it says in Hosea. It's an Old Testament book. It says in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have a child with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Okay, I know this is a weird story in the Bible, but here's what a paraphrase says of this verse. The first time God spoke to Jose, he said, Find a whore and marry her. Make this whore the mother of your children. Here's why. The whole country has become a whorehouse, unfaithful to me, God. So, my point in reading that is because I read it a paraphrase is not a translation. So this man named Eugene Peterson wrote what's called the message paraphrase. And a paraphrase is like he read it in English and he tried to take the concepts that he saw in English and write them in a way that ordinary English-speaking people would go, oh, I get it. So try to make it readable, like understandable. But it's not technically a translation. So there's... So I got some categories here. I have a translation and paraphrases. The first paraphrase I remember was called the Living Bible. They don't even produce the Living Bible paraphrase anymore, but it was very popular, and people read it and enjoyed it because it seemed to be readable. I used an extreme example today because it grabs our attention. So when it comes to translations, there are many of them, and some of the more popular ones are the New English. I think the most used translation today is called the New International Version. And then followed by a couple of others, the uh, New Living Translation, the English Standard Translation. When I was growing up, I read the New American Standard Bible, and but there are many translations, uh, the King James, the New King James, the New English translation, and so on. So, how's a Christian going to decide? I flip open my version Bible here, and I look at all the translations. It says there are 67 English versions. A, ver a version is a translation, uh, in this case, into English, and there are just many of them. But what I recommend to people is to stick with the, I guess, the more uh, popular ones because I think they're probably a little bit more careful in their translation. But I want to explain this whole translation thing 
and maybe that will help people answer the question, why does one sound different from the other? So there are a couple approaches with trans translating work. One is that scholars, I want to say, Taylor, right up front that I'm not a Bible translator. I have three years of Greek in seminary, and many of my Bible professors, Greek professors, are people who translated New Testament's translations that we have today. And so I was around and informed about that, but I'm not an expert. So I'm informed, but I'm not an expert. So one thing that translators do, they, they, uh, these, they usually have large committees, 70 to 100 scholars, and they begin to translate from the Greek New Testament into English, and they check and double-check and recheck, and uh, a translation might take 5 to 10 years for them to do because they really care about accuracy and readability. So I think those are two important terms, accuracy and readability. Just like with any foreign language translating into English, you can make it so wooden or literal that it makes no sense to an English-speaking person. Anyone who has, has had Spanish will understand that there might be a Spanish word that takes four or five English words to really get the meaning of that word down. And that happens in the Greek language as well. So I want to mention two things about these translation work. One is that translators uh, can do what's called dynamic equivalency. That means they might read a sentence or a verse in the Greek language, and they start thinking, okay, what would be an equivalent meaning in English? Not word for word, but the concepts in that passage. And so the New International Version um, reflects that kind of methodology as well. And, and so that's their goal, to be very readable, but they want to be accurate as well. And then there's called formal equivalency. So we have dynamic equivalency and formal equivalency. And that's retaining as much of the word forms as they can and they're not as concerned with the readability. That's the King James Version and the New American Standard. And part of that family tree is the English Standard Version, the ESV version as well. So when I read the English Standard Version, I can tell immediately that it's not as readable or as easy to understand. Okay. So this pops up when they translate figures of speech. One example would be... Uh, in the Old Testament says God is a rock. What does that mean? Does that mean God is something you pick up and throw, that you skip him across the water? Does that mean that, or does it mean that God is a fortress, something that's strong and can't be moved, which is probably the idea. So a translator has to make decisions about figures of speech. And they may say, that figure of speech will not communicate to this group of people. I have a great example of this. I'm in Central America, and I said, your sins are as white as snow. My translator looked at me and goes, we don't know what snow is. It doesn't snow here. Is there, and he's telling me in English, can you think of something different to communicate to my audience that would help? <laughs> and so it caught me off guard, and I went, oh, well, uh, and then I turned to the chalkboard behind me because I was in a school, 
And I said, erased. You're, it's like being erased. So that communicated to my audience. So Bible translators think about those things. Uh, they don't want to change the meaning at all, but they want to make sure that the concepts can be understood by their audience. And, that, and that's what they do. And that's why some of the translations appear different, because maybe their target audience is different. A great example of that is the New Century Version. It came out 25 years ago. It was a children's Bible. Very, very popular with kids, because the, the translator, we want to make it so a third grader can read it. Well, guess what? It was even more popular with adults. So they updated it for the adult reading level of maybe a third or fourth grader. Makes us sound like our reading level isn't very good, but I think the bottom line is people enjoyed it because it was simple and to the point and they could grasp the concepts. And I think that's all good. I think it's all good. Another prominent translation is called the New English Translation, N-E-T, and it's mainly a phone app thing. You can get paper versions, but it has 60,000 translator notes. So you can, uh, on your phone, you can tap the note, and, the, and it'll tell you why the translator chose the language that they have in that. And therefore, that's available to people, too. I like to read many different translations. I just find it gives me variety and it helps me. I think it's all really useful. I think the downside is somebody comes into a bookstore or they look on their phone and go, I don't know which one to pick. Right? They're just up in the air about that. I'm going to say that if it's on your phone app, it's probably fine to read. I, I don't think there's any monkey business going on with the Bible at that point. So there are just those pesky kind of questions sometimes in translate. It just seems so different. I would say read the verse or the paragraph in context when comparing one translation to another, and that's probably for the most part is going to be the same. I don't think the differences in translations make diddly squat difference on major things like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, salvation by grace through faith. There's just nothing in those things that will make any difference uh, to what we believe as Christians. Very rare with that. There is a movement, and it's not so prevalent anymore, that, that the, only the King James should be read in churches. It's called King James only. And those churches tend to be very fundamental, and they think that the Apostle Paul, for some reason that the King James Version is inerrant. It's perfect. I, I think that's uh, wrong and is fraught with many problems. And I want to talk about that for just a moment and step deeper back. And that's that some of our English translations use a different set of Greek manuscripts. And that is one reason why there are slight differences in wording. The King James Version you, was made in 1611 A.D. and it was based on what we call the Textus Recepticus. It's 11 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And a man, a scholar named Erasmus, put that Greek New Testament together. So his goal was to find Greek manuscripts. The Apostle Paul would have written originally in Greek, Peter, Luke, John, so forth, in the Greek language. And he was out to collect those to try to come up with a 
a, um, a Greek New Testament. So he found 11 manuscripts. Well, today we have thousands of those because we are just able better to collect them. People can travel, they can go to libraries. And so we have a better set of collections. He didn't even have Greek manuscripts for some of the chapters in the book of Revelation. So in one sense, he kind of guessed what the Greek would say. Uh, he wasn't trying to be deceptive or anything like that. He was just a scholar doing the best that he could. And because of that, in certain places, the wording gets a little jumbled up. It doesn't change our doctrine or anything we believe, but it's just based on a on a uh, set of Greek manuscripts that are not as um, broadly based. So today, we we have the, what's called the New King James Version of the Bible, which is based on what we call the Greek manuscripts of the Byzantine or the Byzantian Empire. That was the Greek-speaking area of Constantinople, current-day Istanbul, and there's thousands of Greek manuscripts from that area. It is a prolific amount, and so the New King James tends to put more emphasis on those manuscripts. The New International Version puts a little bit more emphasis on manuscripts that were geographically based in Rome or in what we call Alexandria, Egypt. Um, in the first few centuries of Christianity, there were thousands upon thousands of Christians in North Africa, and there were many, many, many Bible manuscripts there, too. A manuscript is a handwritten copy of a, of a Bible. That's what the word manuscript means. And so the New King James and the King James tend to be based on the Byzantine text family, is what that's called, while the New International Version and others are tend to rely more heavily on the, the manuscripts that were found in what we'd call the Roman Empire. The ones found in the Roman Empire and Alexandria, Egypt, are older, generally speaking, than the ones in the Byzantine. So we have, uh, typically, you try to find the oldest manuscripts because you would think they'd be a little bit more accurate. And the uh, Byzantine Empire, many of those manuscripts are from 500 to 1000 AD. And so they're just a little bit later. And this is a whole field of study called textual criticism. The reason that we have different translations in some instances is because they base it on slight changes in the wording from one Greek manuscript to another. I want to emphasize that these differences in the Greek manuscripts sometimes is just punctuation or um, a different tense of a verb. So it might be present tense or, or past tense. And they're very slight differences and I just want to emphasize the content and the meaning does not change whatsoever. This brings up the issue of what we call inerrancy that the Bible we believe is inerrant. That means it doesn't have any errors in it. Inerrancy we only apply that to the original manuscript that the Apostle Paul wrote. So let me give an example of this. The book of Ephesians we would say is um, that the original thing that Paul wrote with his pen is perfect, doesn't have any error in it. But then people began to copy it and copy it and copy it and copy it. Those copies are incredibly accurate, but we don't say they're perfect because human beings were 
what we call transmission, they were copying the, the manuscripts. Sometimes those copyists made errors, and we can see those. Like, they'll be copying uh, a manuscript, and we can tell that they skipped a line, just like we might if we were doing it. And because we had the one that they were copying from, we can tell that. Uh, but because we have 5,000 Greek manuscripts, we can pretty well tell this is the original letter that Paul wrote because we have so many of those. And that uh, should give us incredible trust in the reliability of our Bible. So when it comes to trusting your Bible, I think you can trust the New Living Translation, you can trust the New International Translation, you can trust the English Standard Version, you can trust the King James. If that's your favorite, keep reading it. I'm a big fan of read the Bible that you're going to read. Uh, don't try to think, hey, the one's better than the other one. Because I just want people to read their Bible, plain and simple. Read Scripture. Okay, so I've given this lengthy monologue, and I thought it'd be helpful if I could just ask Taylor, hey, what and all that I said was so confusing, you're going, that made no sense. Help me understand that better. <laughs> yeah. Well, there definitely sounds like there's a lot of translations, and uh, you've picked out a few that are reliable, but would you say that there are any translations that we should stay clear from? Well, yeah, the Jehovah's Witness, New World Translation, <laughs> they're monkeying around with the actual wording and changing it, and um, I, I, I don't have an opinion about some of the other less known or lesser used translations, uh, simply because I'm not that familiar with them. So I really can't answer that very well. All Sorry. Good. And what were those um, translations that you recommended for that that are just a good translation? Yeah, I'm. I just popped open my Bible software and I have like thirty translations on it, and I'm just going to read some of them because I think all of them are just fine. A New International Version, New Living Translation, English Standard Tr Version (ESV), the New American Standard Bible. Uh, New King James, the Holm, the Holman Christian Standard Bible is pretty good. Lexham English Bible, very good. The Net Bible, the New Century Version, which I talked about originally being a children's uh, a version as well. Uh, so those are some of the more predominant. I'm scrolling through my list here. I got other ones, but those are some of the predominant ones that I that I think of that okay. are very that are very well regarded. Put it that way. Well, that sounds good. That Was that totally confusing? Did I go like... Lots of translations, but uh, the new centennial? The new century? The new century. The new century translation, yes. The children's version? <laughs> yes, the children's version. I think I'll give that one a shot. Give that one a shot. <laughs> yeah, it'll be right in your phone, and um, it should be, be fine. I heard on a different podcast, uh, Douglas Moo, I think he teaches at Wheaton University. He was on the original NIV translating team, and he's on many translating teams. And um, I have great respect for people who will spend seven, eight years trying to translate one chapter of the Bible because they're so concerned about accuracy, and they want it to be readable. It's no good to have a translation that people don't read. I mean, what use is that? Mm -hmm. Or if it's confusing to them, so they want to. They're 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 doing their best, trying to make them readable, 
And one of the things they also do is they tailor, they think, well, who's going to be reading this? And what, um, what reading level will the people have that are going to be reading this? So on. So there, there are many background questions that translators work with, and that explains some of the reason the translations will sound differently. Also, it's difficult for translators in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I'll give you an example. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 in Ephesians is actually one long sentence in the Greek language. But in English, they break it up into many different sentences because we don't handle long sentences like that. But Paul often did that. And so with that, they're trying to just make it readable and, and break out sentences when they're just just to help us understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What else you got? Uh, those are the that? two questions that I that I had. Oh, great, great, great. Hey, uh, hey, I'm Steve. In the next podcast, we're going to talk about how do we know that the 66 books of the Bible are the right books, and why does the Catholic Bible have a bunch of extra ones? So that'll be next time. <laughs>